Hey, welcome to the podcast for Scotts Hill Baptist Church. We hope this message helps you discern what is true, what is right, and what is good. We pray it is an encouragement for you today. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning and welcome to Scotts Hill Baptist Church. So glad that all of you are here this morning. Those of you who are watching us online, we're glad that you're able to join us there. And those of you who are in the Cross Point Center, let me give a shout out to all of you who are gathered there. We're so glad that you're able to join us in that venue, which is all video driven, but we're glad that you're there. My name is Phil Ortigo. For those of you who may be first or second time guests, I'm the senior pastor here at Scotts Hill. We're so glad that you're here with us this morning. If you would like to help us out by introducing yourself to us. We have a connections desk in the front. We may have a connections tent outside. I'm not sure with the weather, but we would like to get to know you and we would like to put a gift into your hand, demonstrating our appreciation for you being here today. And anything that you have any questions about the life at Scotts Hill, we would be glad to answer any question for you. Um, do you remember when you were a kid, the thing that you wanted to be when you grew up? How many of you remember that? How many of you remember thinking, when I grow up, I want to be... How many of you just really didn't even think about what you wanted to be when you grew up? How many of you have just not grown up yet and you're still trying to figure that out? Yeah, a lot of hands are being raised. When I was a kid, I remember what I wanted to be, and, and, and you do as well. Some of you wanted to be doctors and nurses, firemen, police officers. Some of you wanted to be astronauts, maybe singers or musicians. Maybe you wanted to, to be an actor or an actress. When I was growing up as a kid, the thing that I most wanted to be was a stuntman. I mean, I did. I loved all of these stunts on television, in the movies. And I thought, man, I, I would love to be a stuntman. And I kind of lived my life like that. I mean, I remember jumping off the roof with an umbrella. Thanks a lot, Mary Poppins. That does not work. I remember being on a swing set and just thinking that you could literally go around if you got high enough, not knowing that gravity will pull the entire set over on top of you. I remember thinking that I could jump my bicycle on a ramp over a car. Doesn't work when you're about in the fifth grade. So I just jumped over my friends instead. I, I was the kid in our family that had the most broken bones, the most hospital visits, and the most stitches growing up. I wanted to be that guy, that stunt man. Always wanted to be that. So I've always been intrigued by stunts throughout the years. And I saw a documentary several years ago about one of the greatest stunt men in Hollywood. His name was Dar Robinson. And Dar was one of the most elite stunt men. I mean, he was courageous. In fact, he was insane. He did all kinds of crazy stunts. He came up in the 70s and the 80s. He did a lot of stunts for a lot of big name movies. But when he wasn't doing stunts for movies, he would do things on his own. One of the things that he did was he jumped from the CN building in Toronto, the very tallest skyscraper, jumped from the top of it and landed on this gigantic air mattress with no ropes, no apparatus of anything, just free fell on top of that. He holds the record for jumping the highest out of a helicopter onto an air mattress. I mean, the guy was crazy. He was insane. He unfortunately was killed in a motorcycle accident going 40 miles an hour. But before that happened, he wanted to do another stunt. He actually wanted to drive a high-performance convertible sports car over the south rim of the Grand Canyon. 
And the, the stunt was going to be he would fly over, drive over it, and then when he got to a particular point, he would skydive out of the car to the safety of the abyss in the canyon. But he was so meticulous. He was so careful with all of his calculations that everything needed to be right. He wanted to know what the, the, the acceleration would have to be. He wanted to know what the speed was at every point. He wanted to know what the drag was going to be. He wanted to know everything before he conducted this, this, this stunt. So one of the things he did was all along the road, leading up to the ramp, going into the canyon, he had markers set up beside him. And on the sides, the markers had numbers on them. And the numbers were in correlation with the speed that he had to have at that point. And with a decreasing distance came the markers. And at each point, if his speed was not where it needed to be, he could make the decision to stop the, the stunt in the event. But he needed to keep up that speed. And he had three sets of markers with numbers on them. But the last marker had two letters on it, N-R, and it meant no return. Once you get to that point, you are absolutely committed. If he tried to stop, he would certainly die because his car would still go over the cliff, but he would not have the speed or the velocity to jump out and parachute. So all along the way, he had these markers, and he kept it up. And the event came, and he was successful. He drove his sports car over that, hitting each marker, hitting the speed. But when he got to NR, he knew it was the point of no return. And as he was in midair, the car began to drift back, and he jumped out, parachuted safely to his wife and his adoring fans. The thing that strikes me about that illustration is this. Along our life's journey... God is so gracious to us to give us markers warning us and to tell us to turn around. And if our lives are not in conjunction with those markers, then he's pleading with us to turn around. But if we don't listen, we ultimately will get to a point of no return. And even though we may sin after sin after sin after sin, and God has grace after grace after grace after grace, there comes a point in every person's life who refuses to walk in the grace of God, that God's grace will run out. And then we hit the point of no return. When we get to Amos chapter 4 is where we are today. This is the whole focus of Amos chapter 4. It's getting to a point of no return. God has been speaking to the people in Amos' day, which was 2,770 years ago. Their culture was exactly like the culture that we're living today. And God graciously put three markers before the people of Israel. And each of these markers is a warning to turn around. Now my intention today was to preach the entire chapter 4 of Amos. And to lay out for you the three markers that were in the day of Amos that are the same markers that God has before us today. But there is no way that I can cover all that, not because of just time, but because the points are too important. So today we're only going to look at the first marker. And the first marker is found in Amos chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. So take your Bibles, take your devices, whatever it is that you have, Turn to Amos chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, as we begin a two-week series entitled, The Point of No Return. 
As you're turning there, I'm going to pray. Father, thank you for your word. Challenge us today. Show us, Father, how your word is as relevant in 2020 as it was in 750 B.C. And Father, may we see the truth that you want to speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, he gives the people of Israel three markers. And we're going to look at these three in the next two weeks. But here's marker number one. That's a warning. Marker number one is dysfunction in the home. The first warning that God gives to the people of Israel is you need to turn around because there's dysfunction in the home. Now, you got to love Amos. Amos was a guy that I told you about that, that was a farmer. He was a fig picker. He was a businessman. He wasn't a professional prophet. So because he wasn't a professional prophet, Amos tended not to have this filter of political correct correctness. He just spoke what God said to him. And so this is his second sermon that he's preaching in this book. And in beginning in verse 1, this is how he starts. He says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. Then he finishes it. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Now, you got to love the way Amos begins. He's preaching to these elite people in the city of Bethel, which is in Israel. He's from the tribe of Judah, which is the southern tribe. He's going up north because God called him to go and speak to the northerners, if you would. And he begins by speaking to the women. And what does he say? He says, hear this, you cows of Bashan. Now, I've had people pray for me this week because I'm like, what am I going to do with that? <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? That is not the greatest way to gather a respectful approach of people that you're speaking to, especially the women in that culture. He calls them, you cows of Bashan. Now, ladies, how would you feel if I began to service today and I ask you to stand by saying, I want all the cows of Scotts Hill to please stand? I would be the one going over the cliff and you wouldn't stand. But the thing is this, many times when we come to scripture and we see stuff like that and we're offended by it, well, what? He's calling the women cows? He's calling them heifers? What we don't understand a lot is the biblical language and the meaning of the language in that culture. Let me give you an illustration. If you ever read Solomon's Song of Songs, and if you've ever read his description of his wife as he's speaking to her, and the words that he uses, you might say, man, that's not, that's not very flattering. It's not flattering. And men, I want to give you some illustrations. In chapter 4, he's speaking about his wife, and he begins with the eyes. And, and he gives line after line. And while these were very meaningful in that culture, they're not very meaningful to us. And we would say, that, what is he thinking? For instance, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, your eyes are like doves. Now, that doesn't sound bad, but to a woman, she might say, what do you mean? Are my eyes bug-eyed? Are they flapping all the time? Is that an insult to me? Most women would not take that as a positive thing. Then he goes on. He says, your hair is like a flock of goats. I mean, guys, can you imagine moving, playing with your wife's hair and saying, ah, it reminds me of a flock of goats. 
It's not very impressive. Women, you don't buy your shampoo that says, your hair can smell like goats. You don't do that. That's not very impressive in our culture. But it was very impressive in that day. Then he goes on. He says, your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes, all of which bear their twins. In other words, honey, I'm glad you got all your teeth. So, I mean, there's some parts of North Carolina you can't say that. And I'm going to let you fill in the gaps of where you think they might be. Okay? Or how about this one? Your cheeks are like halves of pomegranate. Have you ever seen a pomegranate? You cut it in half, it's pitted. It's full of pits. I mean, like, what are you saying? Your face reminds me of a pit farm. I mean, I don't know. Or my f- another one is your neck is like the Tower of David. What is the Tower of David like? Is it long and slender and sleek? No, the Tower of David was short and stout. It's like saying, your neck reminds me of an NFL linebacker. (laughs) And in chapter 1, verse 9, is probably my favorite. He says, I compare you to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. You know, Pharaoh had the whitest horses he could find. to drive his chariots. The point is this. Biblical language, a lot of times in these things, don't mean the same that they mean in our culture. And so what is Amos saying? When he calls the women cows of Bashan, remember, Amos was a cattleman. Amos was a farmer. Amos did not necessarily mean this as an insult Now, most cultures that we're in today, if you call a woman a cow, it is never complimentary. But in that culture, when he says the cows of Bashan, let me tell you about the cows of Bashan. The cows of Bashan were the sleekest, most beautiful, most well-fed, most pampered flock or herd of any kind. It's in that Bashan, they were known for these outstanding cattle. They had the very best of feed. They had the very best of the fields. They had the very best grass. They were pampered. They were highly cared for. In fact, it was very, very expensive to purchase cattle from Bashan. So what is he saying to the women? He's saying, you women have it all together. You're very, very sleek. You are well-groomed. You are well-conditioned. You are very beautiful. You are the thing that many men love to look at and would desire, is what he's saying. So it's really a compliment. So men, if you ever call your your wife a cow, just help, help her to know what you're talking about there. But the problem is this. He's saying you are self-indulged. You are all about yourself. You have lost sight of what your purpose is in the family. Now, he's not just condemning the women who seem to have been taken over in control of everything by telling their husbands to bring them drinks so they continue to live a life of ease. Here's the greatest thing. It's not a picture of domineering women and henpecked husbands. That's not the picture. Here's the picture. The picture is the men of that culture have relinquished their responsibilities to be the shepherds and the leaders of their homes. They have run off to the temples, they and their sons, and sleeping with the prostitutes of the temples. 
And as they have done that, they've let their homes go to whatever it would be. And they're basically saying to women, you take care of this. You take care of the home. You take care of leading the family. We're going to abdicate our responsibility of shepherding and providing for our families. We're going to go do what we want to do. You do what you want to do. It became just a mutual arrangement of two people living in the home and doing whatever it is they wanted to do, all in indulgence and self-centered pride. And the children were the ones who paid for it because they were growing up in a home without biblical illustrations. They were growing up in a home without biblical truth. They were growing up in a home where they were taught to be entitled and that they can have whatever it is that they want. There were no boundaries set for the children. And as a result, the culture was quickly heading towards the end of the cliff. And the family had grown to be absolutely dysfunctional. The warning that God has given to the people of Israel is that you are at the edge of the cliff and you don't even know it. And the first marker that you have passed, which is marriage and family, you have failed miserably in. You need to turn around. You need to turn around. And you need to get this right. And you know what's amazing to me? It's amazing to me how every generation complains about the generation under it. It's amazing to me to listen to all the baby boomers complain about the millennials. And all the things that millennials are living, the baby boomers are just saying, man, I can't believe they live like that. I can't believe they want all those things. I can't believe they're so entitled. Let me remind all the baby boomers of one important truth. Who raised the millennials? Who raised them? I want to tell you, whenever our homes drift from the biblical truth of God's divine pattern, there will come dysfunction and all kinds of troubles. This past week, I did some research on the family. The Pew Research and, and, uh, does an incredible job of tracking where the family is today. And they went back and they looked at the last 60 years tracking families in America. And what they've come to is, and this is a new uh, publication that they just put out. You can go online and check it out. But for the 2020 report, here's what they've discovered. They discovered that the, the, the formation of the family today is nothing like it was 60 years ago. Matter of fact, there are numbers of different scenarios for parenting and having a family today in America. Let me give you some of those stats real quick. It begins to look at the traditional family. The traditional family are two parents in their first marriage. In other words, two parents married and have never been divorced. In 1960, 73% of families were the traditional family. Today, less than 50%, 46% make up the traditional family in America. So according to those statistics, there will be more divorces than marriages that remain together in America. Now, what about those who have been divorced? How do they fare in remarriage? Here's the second thing they've discovered. When it comes to remarriage and two partners, in 1960, only 13% of the people remarried. Some of them didn't remarry, but 13% remarried. Today, 40% of our families are made up of of marriages that have failed and then have been remarried together. 
So less than half of the families in America are, are made up of those. Okay, cohabitation is another one. They changed the word from living together, remember that, to cohabitation, and now it's called recoupled. Our grandparents used to just call it shacking up. You remember that? And so we've gotten more sophisticated in a way we want to talk about cohabitation. But in, in 2010, they went back, ages 18 to 44, 50%, 54% of that group had lived together at one point. And then um, ages 18 to 44, 60% of those people who had lived together actually got married. Well, just 10 years later, age 18 to 44, 59% of that group have lived together, but only 50% of those people have actually gotten married. So the configuration of families today and the fastest growing configuration of the family in America is cohabitation with no plans to remarry or to marry. And then we have the single parent home. This has been on the rise. In 1960, there were only 9% of Americans were in the single parent. In 2020, 26% or single parent families. Now, some of those single parent families may have lived with someone and they're not married and they're not living together today, but 26% are single parents or single moms. Now, I want to say something to single moms. Some of you are single, not by your choice. And it may have been a marriage that has failed, and my hat is off to single moms because they have to do so incredible, so much work as they're working with kids being both mom and dad, and it's a difficult thing. Now, all that leads to childbearing. What does that mean in America today? In 1960, 5% of children were born outside of marriage. In 2020, 40% of children are born outside of marriage. And Asians have the lowest. Whites are right below that. Hispanics are below that. And African-Americans lead the way with 71% of their children being born outside of marriage. And what are we seeing? Is we're seeing the dysfunction of our families. And over the last 60 years, there have been three waves of attacks against the family. Let me give you those waves. Wave number one, marriage is disposable. Marriage is disposable. If you're not happy, get out. I was driving down the road the other day and I saw a billboard for, um, we're coming back from Atlanta, saw a billboard for a lawyer. It says, we undo, I do. It's pretty significant when that becomes a major advertising campaign in America. Because marriage is disposable. If you're not happy, just find someone else. And if you're not happy, then just live with someone else and never get married. Okay, here's the second thing. Marriage is optional. Now you don't even need to get married. You remember the common law laws that they had many years ago? People are not even living by that because the average person who lives and cohabitates has three different partners during their lifetime. From one to another to another. And it's just optional. And now we're living in a culture where marriage is expandable. It's no longer a man and a woman. It could be two men. It can be two women. It could be a man and two women now. It could be two women and a man. It could be four. It could be two couples. And they're constantly trying to expand the definition for family. But here's the problem. 
God has a divine pattern when it comes for the family. And when a culture begins to go beyond that divine pattern, then what begins to happen is they pass the first marker of God's judgment on that nation and on that people. And when we drive past that first marker at a high speed, God is saying, stop, turn around. You need to follow my divine pattern. Because as the creator of every human being and the creator of marriage, from eternity past, I had a plan. So here's why I can't go further with the next marker. Because this is too important for us to look at what God's divine pattern is for marriage. And if we've jettisoned this thing, then we've gone past the marker that God has of a warning for us. And remember, Amos is not just speaking to the pagan people in the nation. He's speaking to his people. And this morning, God is speaking to you and me. And he's reminding us of the divine pattern in how our marriages should function. So I want to give you four points of a divine pattern that we find through Scripture. God lays them out in Genesis. The first couple, as they're engaged, God gives them the divine pattern. And then Jesus, when he is confronted by some Pharisees who have a question about divorce, takes them back to the divine pattern. And many people will say that Jesus never really spoke about the issues and the parameters of marriage. Wrong. He affirmed the parameters that his father laid out from eternity past. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, Jesus responds to the Pharisees. They ask the question about divorce. And he uses it to show the divine pattern for marriage. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus affirms the divine pattern. And there are four points of it that you and I need to hear today. Here's the first point. Marriage has a divine plan. Marriage has a divine plan. This is so important. And I'm afraid that we miss this in the church today. Marriage was not something that was originated in the minds of men. It was originated in the mind of God himself. And what is the divine plan for marriage? You know what marriage is to reflect? Every single marriage, God's intent is that the marriage would reflect the community of the Trinity. We are to be God's thumbprint on earth of the Trinity. Now, I want you to think about the Trinity. All persons within the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, are equal in omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence. They are all equal together in that. The members of the Trinity all have specifically different functions, but they're one. It was the Father 
who had the plan for creation. It is the Son who carried out as the agent of creation. And it is the Holy Spirit who sustains creation. It is a Father who chooses and elects. It is the Son who who dies on the cross to secure that election. And it is the Holy Spirit who draws men and women to Himself. You see this perfect unity in diversity. But here's the other thing in the Trinity. There's perfect submission. They submit to one another. And because of one of them submits to the other, doesn't mean they're inferior, but they're all equal. And God's divine plan is that we would see, as the Father sends the Son, the Son submits to the Father. And the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit submits to the Son and the Father. And the Holy Spirit points to Jesus. And Jesus points to the Father. There is perfect submission and unity and community. And within every family unit, the way God has designed us is we are to reflect the character and the nature of the Trinity together. Husband and wives are created equal in the eyes of God. We are equal before Him, but we are created with distinct differences. And those differences direct us in how we are to live our lives. There are distinct roles within every family. The man is to be the spiritual loving leader of the home. The wife is to be the one who supports him, comes alongside him, holds him accountable, and challenges him. And the children, your role is just to obey. Until you get to be an adult and you get to be in that other role. But in the midst of all of that, here's what it is. It's complementary. We are to complete one another in marriage, not compete with one another in marriage. And part of the problem is we want to push back. We want to compete with one another rather than recognizing the differences that God has given to us so that we can Make each other stronger and more effective and useful in the work of the kingdom. We are to model that. But when sin comes in, let me tell you what sin does. Sin doesn't want completion. It wants competition. And we begin to fight together. We fight against one another. And we live in a culture that we forget. The curse for Eve's sin, it says that you shall desire your husband, but he shall rule over you. In the Hebrew, you shall desire means this. You shall want to be in charge, but he will rule over you. Let me tell you, both of those are part of the curse because it's never been God's design that a man would dominate and rule over his wife. Nor has it been the design that a woman would usurp the God-given authority and responsibility of the man. And so what happens is they compete and there's no completion. And too long and too often... We have seen this. You know what we've seen in family shift? In the 1960s, it was the domineering of a husband over his wife in an unhealthy, ungodly way. And today, it's the domineering of a woman who wants to strip, and we hear this phrase all the time, of men's masculinity. Why? Because masculinity in our culture has become toxic. And what we do is we compete, we undermine, and we unravel the pattern that God has. Men, the pattern is this. You are to be the loving, sacrificial, spiritual leader of your home. 
And you are not to abdicate your responsibility to anyone else. You are called to complete your wife in Christ. And as we walk in those manners, then we see the divine pattern in God's plan for each marriage. So we see the divine plan. But Jesus goes further. Marriage has a divine parameter. Here's a divine parameter. God created them in his image. Male and female, he created them. As we look at God's divine pattern, he created them male and female. First of all, gender is binary. There's either male, there's female. There's no other form of gender. And God very clearly cleared up this issue of gender dysphoria in the garden. There is male, there is female. And not only that, with male and female, it was clearly a heterosexual relationship. God created a man for a woman. And not only that, there was one man for one woman. There's a divine pattern that we see. And God is saying for us that the divine pattern is to be one man and one woman in a heterosexual relationship that he designed from eternity past. Now, we're living in a culture today that pushes so back on that. And we're living in a culture today that if I said that anywhere outside of the walls of this building, I would be considered using hate speech We're living in a culture today that maybe even some of you in this room or watching me online are considering me to use hate language. But it's God's divine pattern. One man, one woman. He lays out the gender. He lays out the sexual orientation in the garden. And some people will say, oh, Jesus never spoke against homosexual relationships. Sure he did. He just did it. When he said it has not been that way from... Let's talk about the beginning. One man, one woman. In a heterosexual relationship that fulfills the purpose and the pleasure of the heart of the Father. Here's the third point. Marriage has a divine purpose. What is a divine purpose? The two shall become one. What is the divine purpose? The divine purpose is oneness and intimacy. In the heart of the Father, He has given a wonderful gift to men and women in a covenant relationship called marriage. He has given the gift of sex. That did not originate from the minds of men or the activities of men. It originated from the heart and the pleasure of God for every married couple. And it is to be within the bounds of that relationship. And what, what we see is in this oneness factor, God has put us together to become one heartbeat, one passion. That doesn't mean we don't have differences and different opinions and all of that. But let me tell you what the oneness means. The oneness means that I pursue your needs over mine. And if a husband and wife are living together within the divine pattern, the husband says, honey, my job is to pursue your needs, not my own. Sweetheart, my job is to pursue your needs and not my own. When a marriage and individuals are going after their own needs, marriage doesn't look like this. It looks like this. And the more I run after my heart and my passions, and the more you run after your heart and your passions, we are not coming together. We are drifting far apart. 
And we're missing the purpose of oneness. And when God brings a man and a woman together in a married relationship, his intention is that we do this. I have often joked and said that my goal in life is to spoil my wife. Now, I think I'd do a pretty good job with that, but she would probably push back on that. And sometimes I think that she's not doing what I'm doing in the relationship. And sometimes the marriage is doing this and this. Maybe even sometimes this, but the goal is always to pursue the other one and their needs first. You see, the divine pattern speaks of his plan of completeness. It speaks of the parameter, but it also speaks of the purpose of oneness. Here's the last one. Marriage has a divine permanence. Has a divine permanence. Jesus said, what God has joined together, let no man separate. We're living in a culture today where there's more emphasis on a contract in a relationship than a covenant. Here's the difference between a contract and a covenant. The contract says each of us agrees to do our own portion. And if one of us does not do what we've agreed to, the other one is free to walk away from this binding relationship. It's a contract. The contract is always focused on what the other person does or does not do. And if they don't make me happy, I'm bailing. A contract is different than a covenant. A covenant is a commitment that I am faithful to you regardless. It's not about what you do or fail to do. The covenant is focused on our relationship with God as the center. And as God is the center, he holds me accountable to treat my wife in such a way that honors her and pleases him. And the emphasis is not on what she does or doesn't do. The emphasis is always on what am I going to do in this relationship. And the parameters and the purpose and the permanence are set. I want you to know this. Everything. Have you noticed? Everything about God's divine pattern is contrary to our culture. Every bit of it. And not only is it contrary to our culture, unfortunately, it has become contrary to the people of God in His church. And He's saying to us, stop. Men, here's the marker. Here's the marker. Are you taking seriously your role as a spiritual leader of your home? Or have you relinquished it to someone else? Ladies, are you allowing your husbands to lead? And are you committed to walking alongside of them for the health of your family? When it comes to the issue of parameter, many, many parents today are struggling with the issue of their children in a same-sex relationship or maybe a same-sex lifestyle. And the tendency is for us to jettison the truth of God's Word because we're emotionally connected with those 
who are living contrary to it. But in the midst of all of that, we love them, but we still stand on the truth of the divine pattern. Then there's the purpose. Are you pursuing one another? Are you running from one another? And then there's the permanence. Are you committed to a lifelong relationship? Some of you in this room have experienced failed marriages. Some of you have remarried because of failed marriages. In the midst of all of that, there is great grace from the Father. There's grace from the Lord Jesus that even in the midst of that, He is saying, my grace will cover you. From this point on, pursue the divine pattern. We can point to the world and we do it so easily. Yet many times the world is pointing to the church and saying, oh yeah, 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 I hear you preach. But is this true in your marriage? It is true. Is it true in your relationships? Has God put a marker in front of you today? And has he said, stop. That's not my plan. Turn around. Come to me. Take seriously my pattern for your marriage. Here's my prayer this morning. Is that as we stand before this marker, that we would evaluate our own hearts and our own souls. For those of you who are married, what is God saying to you about your role in your marriage? For those of you who are single, what is God saying to you about His desire for your life in the future? If you've been divorced, God is saying to you, we all fail. Of course, He doesn't. We do. But there's grace in the midst of that. If you're a single mom, He's saying, my pattern doesn't change. But my grace is there for you. We walk in the grace of God. And even though sin wants to unravel the pattern, nothing could destroy God's intent for marriage and for family. I wonder right now, men, Right now, would you make a commitment to say, I want to be that. I want to be that. God's going to hold me responsible one day as a man of God when I stand before Him and give an account for my family. I want to be that. Ladies, what is God saying to you and your family? I don't want to be the domineering person. I want God to use my husband in a way that he will lead our family well. What is God saying to you 
how that can happen. Through encouragement. But through surrender to Him. Children, what is He saying to you? <laughs> Obey. <laughs> Didn't change. Obey. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You so much for the truth of Your Word and the challenge of it. And Father, as we've been going through this book, it's been so heavy. But Father, this morning, I feel like You wanted to speak to us about our marriage and our families and where we are. Encourage us today. Challenge us today. Father, may we fully submit and surrender to you in all aspects. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us on the Scotts Hill Podcast. Thank you to those who continue to give generously to this ministry. If you want more information about Scotts Hill, how to get connected in your community, or want to know more about Jesus, visit www.scottshill.org slash podcast for more information. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe to get notifications of future episodes. You can also share it with your friends via text message or take a screenshot and post it on your social media stories. Make sure to tag us at Scotts Hill. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.